anticipating your question already about the changes in the U.S. and support for Paris, I think this is one of the real measures of resilience we have now with the global climate governance is that you have these companies are sticking to these targets and because it's good business, they see it's good business and they also see it's good business both to take advantage of the opportunities, but also they're seeing You know, I hear a lot from them about risks that they're experiencing in their supply chains right now. The the climate is real to them. Commodity prices are going back and forth. There's droughts and there's things in agricultural supply chains. There's floods to parts of their warehouses. And so they're seeing that climate risk and they don't need to be convinced anymore. And they're kind of increasingly coming to the government and saying, "Okay, what do we do about this together? And we're here to help. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and my co-host today is Michael Green, the Executive Director of Climate Action Business Alliance, or CABA for short. Welcome back, Michael. Well, it's great to be back. I'm happy to be on the show today and uh, be talking with an amazing guest, Thomas Kerr from the World Bank, uh, who oversees uh, some of the finance programs between the private sector and individual state governments. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, This is the first podcast we're doing since the Trump administration has announced the United States will be leaving the Paris Agreement, so we'll have a lot of questions for Tom. So today, we are happy to have Tom Kerr joining us uh, from the World Bank. Tom serves as Principal Climate Policy Officer for IFC and Climate Change Group. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So, Tom, this is we got you on a fortuitous day here just after the Trump administration's announcement. But before we get to the kind of the heavy duty questions, maybe you could explain to the members of our audience who don't understand, what is the World Bank? What is the World Bank? So we are the world's largest development finance institution, and we are consisting of the World Bank Group, the IBRD, they call it sometimes, which has clients as finance ministers, our developing country governments that are trying to finance developments across a variety of uh, sectors. And then where I sit is the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, is the private sector arm of the bank. So we work in developing countries, lending to private sector clients and uh, helping them to find profit in development and in, in, in my particular group, trying to find profit in climate business. So we work across the world in emerging markets to really try to tackle poverty. And, the, you know, that's the main mission, but that in development, make it smarter. And then, you know, in my case in particular, we try to make a profit out of climate business. And the World Bank was formed after World War II as a kind of a global effort to lift up economies that were struggling and help develop the the less developed parts of the world. Is that is that accurate? Statement? Yeah, that's a good summary of it. There's um, it's part of the IMF, the World Bank, the the, the Bretton Woods institutions there, so called, set to tackle and sort of balance the global economy and bring up, as you said, the 
you know, there's a whole whole set of least developed countries that uh, need special support. And that's actually something I should have said, too. That's called the IDA, the International Development Agency, which uh, supports the poorest countries. So, Tom, so tell us a little bit more about what the uh, the type of work that the Climate Change Group does. What, what types of projects are you working on or what kind of things are you most excited about? Yeah, I think we have an interesting role in the global community on climate as a World Bank because we can both try to exhibit thought leadership and try to get leaders across sectors, uh, across business and government and, and civil society to kind of see the urgency for action. So in climate in general, for example, three or four years ago, we published something called Turn Down the Heat, which World Bank President Kim came in when he first joined the World Bank and said he wanted to ha- call, have a call to arms around the dramatic impacts we should expect to see in a four-degree warmer world. Uh, and so there was a good study that was done with Potsdam Institute in Germany and a lot of other think tanks to kind of just summarize the science that if we stay on this four-degree pathway, what's going to happen to supply chains, to communities, to coastal uh, zones, to you know, drinking water and, and disease, you know, rep more disease and all those things that, that we hear about a lot and it quantified in a very easy to understand and, and I would say alarming way. Uh, and so there, there's a thought leadership role there to call attention to different issues and problems, but also then on the solutions, we can uh, call attention to them too. So I think one of the big roles that we'll talk about is carbon pricing. Uh, that's one of the key solutions to climate uh, in terms of just getting the, making the polluters pay uh, and using that money to, to help lower the costs of some of the other solutions we need to see. So the World Bank plays that role and sort of attention and awareness and, and getting people to convene at the highest levels. But then at the same time, we are a bank or a financial institution. So in our own practices, we can then implement solutions that people can then emulate. And so, you know, IFC, for example, we a lot of times you know, we opened up a lot of the emerging markets over the past decade plus. We were came into a lot of countries that had not done renewable energy before, but we, we helped them to do the first deals. And now we're seeing a lot of commercial banks come in after us and, and support, and we're really catalyzing the growth of that market. And so uh, also things like setting green bonds, uh, that was a new financial instrument, uh, a gleam in some people's eyes several years ago. We defined what it means to be a green bond, and then we started issuing them. Uh, and now that's sort of becoming a $50 billion plus market globally, where a lot of commercial banks and corporations and even cities and governments are issuing green bonds now. And so we can sort of be a financial institution and then also show the way of how to innovate and be a financial institution to change the way we finance. And so that's another interesting role that the World Bank Group can play. So, Tom, let me jump in with a question. And uh, when the new president came on, when uh, Kim Young came, became president uh, of the World Bank, we saw a real focus on climate change as a priority. Uh, but the bank's history in investment in uh, renewable energy and clean technology and loans, using that as a lens or a priority to state governments, uh, definitely predates him. Uh, so what are the real change that you've seen since he's come in over the past few years uh, as far as carbon pricing or maybe uh, carbon policy, where that ranks within priorities for financing and loans? Yeah, it's, I think it just is. A, it was a personal commitment. He said at the beginning, as, as I said, he really first convened this sort of turn down the heat report to get a, as a scientist, as a doctor himself, he'd worked in development uh, health for many years, he wanted to know what the current problem was. And once he found out, he got quite alarmed and made it a top priority for him, his, his you know, sort of personally, to raise uh, attention externally and also within the World Bank's priorities. And so I think 
you're right, we've always been doing this, but he put an increased urgency behind it uh, and really tried to push the agenda also, as I said, with this sort of uh, you know, external awareness building and convening and trying to get his counterparts, whether they're heads of state or finance ministers or CEOs, to kind of say, well, let's talk about this. Can, you know, can carbon pricing be a solution? How do we, you say this is important and we've heard you, you talk about it, but how do we push you to make stronger commitments to actually put this into place and implement that? And so, you know, provide technical support, provide lessons learned, provide resources where we need to investment. So he's really, you know, kind of accelerated that agenda, I think, internally uh, from even, you know, five or seven years ago. And then that translates into your work uh, at the ISC and engaging the private sector, uh, where I'm sure you get to work with several, uh, you know, really leading corporate partners uh, in that uh, kind of same vein and uh, shared value alignment. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been working in climate and energy and, and, and with companies, the private sector side for my whole career. So it's been over 20 years and it's been, I've been fascinated to see really in the past three to four years since uh, leading up to the Paris Agreement and then beyond the real, I would say the transformation of the private sector, both internally their own awareness of their, their uh, importance to be part of the solution and to be offering up very concrete and specific actions but also the recognition in the political process of how important they are. Um, I think that, you know, for many years I got frustrated with the governments going off and negotiating, and, and then, you know, the private sector was not invited. They were sort of outside the process, and they didn't understand the dynamic of actually having the private sector at the table. And, you know, a good example was before Paris, I think, uh, over a thousand uh, businesses or a thousand pledges were made by different businesses around the world of some sort of renewable energy purchase target or support doing internal carbon pricing or deforestation reduction. Um, many, uh, many different sort of commitments that were made in decarbonization of investment portfolios. And these are real targets that these companies are making and they really want to monitor those. And so, um, anticipating your question already about the changes in the U.S. and support for Paris, I think this is one of the real measures of resilience we have now with the global climate governance is that you have these companies are sticking to these targets and because it's good business, they see it's good business and they also see um, it's good business both to, to, to take advantage of the opportunities, but also they're seeing, you know, I hear a lot from them about risks that they're experiencing in their supply chains right now. It's the, the climate is real to them. Commodity prices are going back and forth. There's droughts and there's things in agricultural supply chains. There's floods to parts of their warehouses. And so they're seeing that climate risk and they don't need to be convinced anymore. And they're kind of increasingly coming to the government and saying, okay, what do we do about this together? And we're here to help. Yeah, no, and uh, I remember when that announcement was made from the private sector leading into the climate negotiations in Paris, and it's something that we always seem to see uh, state negotiators sit on their hands a bit throughout the talks. Oh, you know, we have to go back to our finance ministers, or we're not quite sure how the, uh, what you're asking for will overlay with industry or the economic policy of our country. Uh, and I think really having the private sector speak out uh, to start the negotiations, as well as having the heads of state speak out uh, at the beginning of the negotiations, played a crucial role. Uh, now, some of those at the beginning of uh, the 2015 talks, how have they been responding or what kind of questions have they been reaching out to you uh, within, in response to uh, President Trump's decision to pull out of the agreement? 
Well, I won't say they're reaching out to me saying, well, you know, I, I honestly think, like I said, that they don't see a big change in their strategy because of that. Mm-hmm. I think because the agreement is, you know, as you, you, I'm sure you know, it's, it's 190 plus countries making their own national commitments. And so, you know, other than uh, the U.S., we haven't seen any other government come forward and say, okay, now I'm reconsidering my pledge. And I think that was also another element of this resilience of the Paris Agreement is that it's not a top-down process where if one big party like the U.S. pulls out, it completely collapses. But instead, it's got all these different commitments that are from the bottom up. And, you know, we've heard, uh, you know, the EU and China struck a deal um, just the same day that the, we heard the U.S. announcement. But we've also seen, you know, India was talking with France and, and also uh, Prime Minister Modi making you know, a stronger commitment again to phasing out coal and to doing electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think everybody sees the direction of travel. Uh, and I always like Christiana Figueres, the former UN uh, head. She would say, you know, we, we've all gotten on this highway. We're in different lanes. We're going at different speeds. But with the important part is we're all traveling in the same direction and we're going to be moving, you know, forward together. Uh, and so maybe the U.S. <coughs> might be on the sidelines for now. But I don't see this really affecting, um, you know, I haven't heard anything from businesses about changes in their plans because of that. Now, that was actually going to be my follow-up question here is, you know, do you think anyone, whether it be a state actor or private sector, kind of rescinds or pulls back, reins in, if you will, their commitments uh, based on the recent announcement? So maybe a, a somewhat related question is, do we think that this is going to have any kind of ripple effect? You know, we're we have the bond talks coming up this November. I believe we will be there. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how the private sector responds. I, I wonder if there will be any ripple effect or, you know, quite frankly, are we better off without maybe the Trump administration being there, or being as involved? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the, the key thing for me is that everybody realizes too, while I said we're all on the same highway and it's great to see all these pledges that when you add them all up, they're still not achieving the two-degree target. And now even with the U.S. supposedly out, although then you see the, the news about different coalitions that Mayor Bloomberg, former Mayor Bloomberg and others are pulling together of different U.S. actors that might make up a big chunk of the difference for the U.S. But that aside, I think the biggest worry I have is that we, we do need to now make good on those pledges that were made in Paris and help those countries really go from a pledge to implementation to see, you know, shovels in the ground and, and money going out the door to these lower carbon investments. And so that comes back to my role at IFC and our, our, we feel a really strong commitment to helping the developing countries that have made NDC commitments. You know, they've gone from, you know, I, I, you know, I know countries in Africa from almost zero renewable energy to having 40% of their power come from renewables by 2030. So that's a massive ramp up and a very quick time frame. You know, 13 years is really short time frame for that. And so we're looking at, uh, you know, how do we transfer the, all the knowledge we've had about how to do this? And I think the best part about it is that we don't have to convince the banks as much anymore. That this is not a risky technology anymore, most of these cases. Uh, it's really about just transferring the knowledge from other you know, one country to the next. And so I, my sense for, para, uh, for um, bond this November, the key we're going to need to see is um, some progress on these NDCs. Mm-hmm. Um, investment announcements and some countries coming forward and saying, I've done this and now I'm doing that. And then again, some companies coming up and standing with those governments and saying we're helping. So I think that's what we're hoping to kind of orchestrate and pull that forward. And I hope many other partners are, are focused on that as well. Was there any particular hole left by the United States backing out? Is there a financial commitment that the United States is no longer going to fulfill with regard to developing countries? 
Yeah, I think the main one is their commitment to the Green Climate Fund, the contribution that uh, President Obama made. I think, I, I, to be honest, I'm not the expert on that. I think it's two or three billion, and I think Trump has said they will not be doing that. And so I think that is a big hole that, you know, uh, if you follow the negotiations, the developed countries actually promised a hundred billion per year starting, I think, in 2020. And then they were only at about 12 or 14 billion, somewhere around there. And now with the U.S. backing out, they're, they're even one step back. And so that will be a big challenge. And I think that that is, you know, the, the interesting thing about all of this is we, we talk a lot about, it's not about the billions, it's about the trillions. And it's about it's not about using, this is not going to be solved by a bunch of government money going to spend on the problem. What, it will, what we're trying to do is put that money in a very strategic, targeted way. So it comes in and covers those the riskiest investments, the ones that wouldn't necessarily be financed directly by the private sector at the first gate. But then they're catalytic, like those ones I mentioned earlier. So once they, they are funded and go forward, then the private sector sees that and then comes in and then you're you're able to use that public dollar to mobilize. Sometimes you've seen like eight, $1 US can mobilize about $8 in return of private sector funding. So, you know, that's what we need, to, you know, with the gap with the US pulling out, we will have to find other, you know, some other public monies to, to help to, to catalyze that, that private money that we're going to need. Because we are in the trillions when we talk uh, between now and 2030. And it's about, you know, these investment decisions are being made every day by infrastructure and cities. And, and so the, the quicker we can move on that, the better. That's interesting. It's uh, one of the things Massachusetts was actually quick to respond, Tom. And I don't know if you heard this, uh, but Massachusetts actually introduced uh, legislation in response to the Trump's administration's threats, initial threats, and now follow through on those threats, which would allow uh, state residents to put their state tax refund toward the least developed countries fund, uh, part of the GCF, uh, which is, I think, a very interesting way of starting to figure out how we're going to fill that hole that's being left uh, by the administration's choice not to follow through with our commitments. One of the things that I'm kind of tracking, I'm going to be very interested about uh, going into bond this fall, is in the past, uh, look at the, the time frame between Copenhagen and Paris. Uh, we saw an absolute ramp up and uh, really culminating in the 1.5 to stay alive saying of really this commitment to ambition and increasing ambition year after year and keep moving it forward. And you kind of hinted at this. It'll be interesting to see how that plays with uh, rhetoric kind of against the current U.S. administration. Another thing I've really appreciated you know, during the Obama era was not being looked at necessarily as the bad guy, as being someone at the negotiations from the United States. So it'll be interesting, maybe in, in final thoughts, anything that you're going to be looking for in Bonn and uh, whether or not you think that the ambition will still be there. Yeah, I, I know it's a very good, it's exactly right. I mean, because I think what is it, 2018, there's this sort of stock taking about where have they gotten. And I think, you know, they are, people already recognize that the ambition isn't currently high enough, but we're at least in the direction of travel. And I think so we're going to have to see countries coming forward with progress and showing that they've, they've actually started to reduce the emissions. They've started to ship, make that transition happen. The costs are lower than expected. And again, this comes back to, my, you know, as you know, my, one of my favorite solutions is putting a price on carbon. I think we have seen some really interesting shifts in the past couple of years, whether it's Canada with their $50 a ton price floor that they've instituted nationally. And that's a huge shift, you know, from the previous administration in Canada. And so now you see a, a, one of the biggest economies in the world 
pricing carbon across their economy. China will finish by the end of this year the, the world's largest carbon market and put that in place. And I know that, you know, I have colleagues from my, our Beijing office that are helping banks to figure out how do I profit from this? How do I help my client base as a bank to, to get ready for uh, the low carbon transition driven by these carbon markets? And then you've got places like Chile or Colombia and Latin America, Mexico. They're all moving down that path. And so I'm, we're also very hopeful that we'll see this carbon pricing because it, it's this amazing, you know, I, I still think it's really uh, is not sold enough as a solution because I think you, people hear the word price or tax and they think a negative thing. But if you think about it in the concept that this is one of the few ways that you're going to, it, it's a it's a very fair way to take the people that are emitting the most Take that them they pay into a fund that actually then is used. That money is going to be used to help the transition. So it helps the fossil industry to transition. It helps the workers to get new jobs and new clean tech in Canada. I think that's you know it's it's amazing to to see that. And I think I, I'm hopeful that that'll also be. You'll hear a lot about that at Bond. Tom, do you have any sense from the what you're hearing and what you see in your world? Any sense of where the Trump administration is going to end up with regard to carbon? Are we just going to you know walk away from this or there, supposedly there are forces within the administration that are that wanted to stay in the Paris Agreement and think that we should be addressing this problem. And we've had Republicans step forward and propose carbon pricing. Uh, yeah. Any sense in your world what you think is going to happen? Honestly, uh, you know, the crystal ball is not working for me these days with, um, with <laughs> this administration. I just don't have a sense. I mean, I think, like I said, that I think most companies are not, are just moving ahead. They're not. This isn't changing their strategies you know, at least the progressive companies, I think you won't see some of the companies they weren't convinced before. I, I don't think you'll see them move. But I, I don't know, honestly, what, you know, I think whether this administration will push back and decide to change its tack or not. It's, it's really unclear from someone that's an outside observer. Geez, that was just so packed with information and good things. That's great. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It was really interesting. I, I hope this was of interest to your, your audience. And uh, you know, I look forward to working with you as well on some of these issues. Yeah, thank you so much, Tom. So, Michael, that was a great conversation. You know, it's a very kind of crazy time regarding where we are with uh, climate change and climate change policy. But Tom certainly sounded kind of upbeat that this um, U.S. Uh, removing itself from the Paris Agreement would not be as disruptive as it may at first look. As he uh, quoted Christiana Figueres, you know, we may be all going in the same road and it looks like the administration's car must be broken down on the side of the highway. Um, but hopefully we'll uh, be able to move them forward uh, in Bonn and in 2018 before any kind of American pullout from the Paris Agreement would go into effect. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point that it doesn't, it won't go into effect until about 2020. Is that is that accurate? When when will the actual, will we actually withdraw? That would be uh, my understanding. And what this really does is it turns this into the hot topic, hot button debate item for the next presidential election. We have to think that uh, any kind of opposition to the current administration is going to push on this uh, pretty darn hard. Yeah, and we usually we've been ending these shows with a you know what we see in the news. So, you know, my thing in the news was Michael Bloomberg's announcement that he was going to commit fifteen million dollars to the UN, and basically what Bloomberg said was that uh, it is going to be a bottom up movement from here forward. That the United States will meet its um, obligations, but it will be driven by, at the state level, the city level, the corporate level, and the citizen level. So 
you know, I think in some ways, you know, for those of us who really believe in climate change and believe it's the issue of our time, you know, maybe this is the wake up call. Maybe this is what is needed to shake people out of complacency and realize that they really need mm-hmm. to fight for that. You know, and my uh, story this week was actually directly related to that. And it's just the outpour of support and defiance that we've seen from private sector and from subnational governments, uh, city and state governments across the country really standing up and saying, wait a second, this doesn't represent me. It's something that we've been seeing time and time again with this administration. Uh, but there's just something about this moment uh, that really stands out. And, and one of the things that I thought that was uh, specifically inspirational and bit moving is, is even when you have governors and Republican governors uh, from across the country saying, no, we want climate action, we want to hold ourselves to the Paris Agreement, and we're going to move forward with or without you. Yeah, I think it's an interesting dynamic, right? So there's, I think for the Trump folks, the folks who support Trump, there's kind of two arguments. One is that you know, it's about the U.S. sovereignty. It's about America first. And then there's this other argument about it being, you know, better for the economy. And I think in it, the reality is that mm-hmm. this is a move that's bad for the economy. I, I saw a statistic this week that said that there are more there are more people in the state of California working in the renewable energy industry than there are people working in the coal industry in the entire United States. Yeah, that seems to be something that uh, it's not just the the California's economy, but uh, states up and down the coast and even some states that you wouldn't quite think of are really looking at this opportunity to be energy independent and, and clean energy independent. It's taking off. And I really don't understand where the government is getting citing uh, these job loss and economic challenges to the Paris Agreement. If anything, is it not only going to put us at behind the eight ball a bit economically, but also in our soft power going forward in any other kind of negotiations, whether it be climate or or other things related, uh, who's going to trust us? Uh, with us pulling out of Kyoto with us, or excuse me, refusing to sign Kyoto and us pulling out of Paris, uh, really, have we lost all credibility with this move? It's really not going to make the the pathway forward for this administration any easier. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it was I, I saw Newt Gingrich speak a number of years ago, and he talked about Americans should never be afraid of competition. And what we also need to not be afraid of is the future. And and as a country, economically, uh, to kind of back away from the technology of the future and not be in the driver's seat or wanting to or leading that effort, I think it's long term. It's a really big mistake economically. But but we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out in the in the coming weeks and months. We certainly will. Uh, well, with that, I think we should uh, thank Thomas one more time and. Uh, we'll tune, hope everyone tunes in to our next episode. Michael, thank you very much, and thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 